Today on Something You Should Know, it's important to take breaks during your workday. But when? Well, I'll tell you exactly when. Then, the fascinating history of blue jeans. And as you might imagine, John Wayne and his blue jeans are part of the story. Every time he was going to go on a new film set, his family, in a sort of a ritual, would bundle the jeans up with rocks and toss them off a pier into the Pacific Ocean and leave them for a couple of days. And then when he dragged them out, they had been broken down and softened by the combination of the stone and the water. Also, just how accessible are those super successful people you'd love to meet? More accessible than you think. And amazing science you never knew. Well, 50% of the cells in your body are not yours. They are microorganisms which are hitching a ride. It's even worse because it turns out that 99.75% of the DNA in your body does not belong to you. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to another interesting, fun, and fact-filled episode of Something You Should Know, episode number 226. And we begin today talking about breaks. You've probably heard, and a lot has been written, about the importance of taking breaks when you're working and that you will ultimately do better work and be more productive if you take breaks during the workday. But the question is, when? When is the best time to take a break? Well, according to research at Baylor University, the answer is mid-morning. It seems mid-morning breaks are more helpful because it's easier to replenish your energy early in the day when your concentration and motivation are higher than trying to replenish yourself later in the day when you're more tired and depleted. But taking a break from work doesn't mean taking a break and then go pay your bills or schedule a doctor's appointment or doing anything else that is even slightly stressful. Otherwise, it defeats the whole purpose of taking a break. Taking a break means taking a break from all work. So you're better off to go talk to someone, read an article, or just cyber loaf on the internet. You'll feel better when you return. And that is something you should know. Few things are as all-American as blue jeans. I'm sure you have a pair or two or three in your house somewhere. Everyone has worn blue jeans. So where did they come from, and, and what is denim anyway, and how is it different from other fabrics? Why did blue jeans become so iconic and so associated with America, particularly the American West? Well, as you might imagine, there's a fascinating story here, and journalist James Sullivan explored and uncovered it for his book, Jeans, A Cultural History of an American Icon. Hi, James. Welcome. So take us back to the beginning. Where did blue jeans start and why and how did they catch on? How did it all begin? Well, blue jeans, uh, the, the history is long and a little bit complex. Um, denim work clothes actually began in Europe two or three hundred years ago. Um, what we consider today to be the modern blue jean, the mass-produced, factory-produced, Blue jean um, originated in 1873 with the Levi Strauss Company out of San Francisco. And the distinction is that the mass-produced jeans that Levi's began making have the copper rivets. 
Um, the copper rivets make the pants obviously more durable. They last longer. And um, at the time, that was done so that miners and other working class people would have uh, durable work clothes. The rivets have since become um, part of the whole fashionability of, of jeans themselves. Everybody uh, knows what denim looks like and feels like. I mean, you can spot it a mile away that that's denim. That's what jeans are made out of. But what is it and and how is it different than other fabrics? Denim is a uh, cotton twill material, but with the warp is dyed with indigo, although jeans have come in many different colors. And the cross thread is undyed, which is one of the things that gives jeans their distinct look. Um, the more the indigo abrades off of your jeans, in other words, when you wash them and wear them and the, and the indigo starts to chip away, it exposes the, the undyed uh, cross-thread underneath, and that's where the fading comes from. That's where the distinct fading look comes from. So in denim, the threads going one way are colored, and the threads going the other way are not colored. They're white. So th- that's what makes denim denim. And, and so who, who is Levi Strauss? Was he a real, was he a real guy? Levi Strauss is a real guy, sure. Um, Levi was a wholesaler in San Francisco beginning in the 1850s when San Francisco was a boom town because of the uh, California gold rush. And he was selling all kinds of uh, household goods, materials, um, including denim, to retailers. And the idea of blue jeans, uh, he was selling something like an early version of jeans, among the many other things that he was selling, for the first two decades of his existence as a, as a businessman in San Francisco. Um, he was approached in the early 1870s by um, a small-time uh, tailor in Nevada who had come up with the idea of adding the copper rivets to make the pants more durable for his customers. And this guy, his name is Jacob, was Jacob Davis, had um, been buying uh, denim material from Levi Strauss for, for a number of years, and he approached his supplier and said, if you can help me come up with the cost for the patent application, we can split it. And Jacob Davis eventually went to work for Levi and um, ran the first factory that produced the first Levi, uh, Levi's jeans. So the original appeal of blue jeans w- was the durability, that it, nothing else. It wasn't fashion. It wasn't, ooh, cool color. It was just that they were very durable. You know, I like to say that for the first 75 to 100 years of their existence as we know them, I don't think anybody really thought twice about them other than the fact that you wanted them to be durable. You know, you were probably wearing them, uh, you, were, you were almost certainly wearing them for hard work. You were a farmer or a miner or someone building the railroads or a construction worker, cowboy. Um, you were doing hard work and you weren't wearing them for the way they looked. It was only really in the uh, 1940s, let's say, that, that jeans really started to become something like a fashion item. And how did that happen? Well, in the early years, uh, the 30s and 40s, one of the first ways that the general mainstream of America came to understand what blue jeans were was by uh, seeing them in movies, in uh, Western movies. The, the earliest cowboy heroes in the movies were sort of dandies. They, were, they, they wore a lot of fringe and fussy-looking cowboy clothing. And then as uh, Western films uh, grew up, the John Waynes and um, uh, men of his era started wearing blue jeans that um, they felt were a little more of an authentic farmer or or cowboy look, which were dustier and uh, sort of more rugged looking. Students and young people in the 30s and 40s 40s began wearing them in part because they wanted to emulate their heroes from Western films, um, and also in part because they wanted to show uh, college students, for instance, wanted to show solidarity with the working class. So artists, college students, 
and young people really started, didn't start wearing jeans as casual wear until the 30s and 40s. What is it about Levi's that makes them so iconic and, and they seem to win the battle every time other jean manufacturers show up? Uh, you know, they, they've carved out a niche, but Levi's is still, uh, in many minds, uh, blue jeans. Levi's is blue jeans. Well, they clearly have created a company that's had uh, astounding durability, just like the product itself. I mean, they, they did um, essentially invent the modern blue jean in 1873. That's a, that's a long time. And uh, the company was um, actually a regional company, um, mostly uh, recognized on the West Coast until 50 or 60 years ago. Um, there was a time, it's hard to understand it now, but there was, a, there was a long period of time where there were other jeans manufacturers that were better known on the East Coast than Levi's. But one of the things that the company was great at, has always been great at, is uh, marketing itself. And um, so in the 30s, 40s, 50s, Levi's really started to understand maybe more quickly than any of their rivals that you could market these things not only to working men and women, but also to young people um, as, as their own kind of leisure wear. And so Levi was really sort of instrumental in, in, in establishing that. It does seem that a lot of jean companies have come and gone, but who would you say are Levi's, ha- historically have been Levi's biggest competitors in the blue jean business? Well, uh, historically, it's always been Lee, and since the 40s, Wrangler. Wrangler was founded in, uh, the Wrangler that we know today was founded in 1947. Um, historically, it's always been those, those two companies, although uh, pretty clearly in the last handful, you know, there's, there's been uh, cycles in Jean's history where various uh, trendy designers have gotten a lot of attention, and uh, clearly in the last handful of years that don't quite put up the same numbers that Levi's does, but that have been grabbing um, the lion's share of the attention for, for the product. But historically, it's, it's Wrangler and Lee. And certainly over the years, there have been different styles of jeans. You know, the, there's the button fly and the zipper fly and the extra pockets and a lot of different styles of blue jeans. Jeans were button fly until the 20s when the Lee company actually introduced the zipper. One of the interesting things that I found in researching my book and talking to many different people who've been in the industry for a long time is that we tend to think of jeans in terms of, in stark terms going from the sort of rock and roll 50s look of Levi's and the other companies or the, or the cowboy look, um, and then uh, suddenly in the late 70s and early 80s going to the, de- the designer uh, jeans of the disco era, uh, Calvin Klein and Gloria Vanderbilt and Guest Jeans and Jordache and all of those brands, when the fact of the matter is that from the mid-60s or so, jeans manufacturers had been finding many different ways to stylize jeans, to make them something other than the classic, uh, as I said, rock and roll or cowboy look that we um, think of as the sort of the old-fashioned looking jean. In the 60s, um, kids started wearing their jeans lower on the hip. They started wearing much more flared bell bottoms. Um, They started toying with the finishes, the washes, um, pre-washing the jeans, um, to uh, sell them with a, with a pre-faded look and, and uh, bleaching them and, and other uh, methods of changing the, altering the appearance of the, of the garment before it, was even, before it even hit the shelves. So um, uh, many different things were done to jeans before that designer jeans era that were, that were intended to sort of stylize them, upscale them. I'm speaking with James Sullivan. He is a journalist and author of the book Jeans, A Cultural History of an American Icon.
So James, here's a question. Remember, remember stonewashed jeans? I had several pairs of stonewashed jeans back in the 80s or, <laughs> or whenever they were popular. What does that term mean? What are, what are stonewashed jeans? Stonewashed literally means washed, washed in washing machines with pumice stone. There's a, a fun tale that um, I uh, retell in my book about John Wayne. He did something that a lot of people did back in his day. The jeans were never pre-washed in his day, and so they came pretty stiff, and you wanted to break them in before you started wearing them, and a lot of people sort of started to realize that you could, people would, would lie down in a bathtub with them on for an hour or two so that they would shrink to, to form fit the body. And uh, one of the things that John Wayne did was um, he, uh, every time he was going to go on a new film set, he would take his family on uh, on a vacation beforehand, and they would he would he would have his new pair of jeans that he was going to wear on the film set, and um, his family, in a sort of a ritual, would um, would bundle the jeans up with rocks, tie them up, and toss them off a pier into the Pacific Ocean, and leave them for a couple of days until the vacation was over with. And then when he dragged them out, they had been broken down and softened um, by the stone, by the combination of the stone and the water. Wow, I, I've never heard that story before. That's pretty interesting that, that John Wayne would tie up his jeans and throw them off a pier. But, but as you point out, I mean, they, they weren't pre-washed, probably pretty stiff and uncomfortable. So he probably wasn't the only one to do something like that to soften them up. There's a well-known uh, Hollywood designer, costume designer, who did real uh, stylish Western suits called Nudie Cohen, Nudies, the company that, that made all of those um, very stylized, fringy Western suits. I uh, did stuff for Elvis and lots of country singers. And in the early 70s, before any of the major jeans manufacturers stone, began stonewashing their jeans on a mass production scale, uh, Nudie was another designer who did the same thing. He took um, industrial-strength washers, and tossed his, uh, his jeans um, into the washers with stone and um, uh, tossed them that way. It, it, from all accounts, I'm told, the process is hell on, um, on the washing machines. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. And, and you probably end up with some very clean stones. Uh, you talk about uh, the prices people have paid for vintage jeans. It's pretty amazing. Talk about that. Like a lot of other collectible artifacts, you know, jeans have... have one of the neat things about them is that they've been such a huge part of American culture for so many years that at this point, a pair of 100-year-old jeans, um, if it's in decent shape, is worth a lot to someone out there. One of the interesting things about that is, is the idea of globalization. I mean, one of the main products of, of uh, selling Western culture to the rest of the world has been blue jeans over the years. Other uh, cultures have historically um, loved the idea of blue jeans and what it says about American culture. And so in the 1980s, the Japanese were going through their huge economic boom and um, looking for places to spend their money, essentially. And one of the ways that they, one of the places that they did that was on vintage American clothing. And uh, not just jeans, but bomber jackets and uh, Hawaiian shirts, certain looks that dated uh, to the World War II era actually were huge in Japanese culture. And... Um, so collectors there started paying crazy amounts of money for, for vintage blue jeans. The, the collectibles market has kind of gone up and down a little bit since then, but um, um, Levi Strauss, for instance, has um, a world-class archive of its own products, and they have been known to pay 
huge sums for genes that have been newly discovered that date back to 100 years or so. Um, in a lot of cases, they're called minor, miner's pants because the genes will be found in um, in the mines of Nevada and, and the West, um, they were used in a lot of cases when they started to wear out. They would be used to fill cracks um, to keep the, the insides of the cave sites uh, intact. And um, uh, excavators have found fairly good examples of old genes socked away in, in, the, in the cracks of old mines in, in the West. And if you were to look at a pair of those old genes from way back when they were miners' pants, if you were to look at them and feel them, I mean, would they feel like genes, or has the fabric and everything about genes, have they evolved to such a point that you wouldn't recognize them? They essentially look and feel like genes, which is one of the amazing things about genes. I mean, over the generations, uh, each su- successive generation for the last 50 or 60 years has initiated various kinds of twists on on the product to make it their own, whether we're talking about the extreme wide bell bottoms of the hippie era or the extreme baggy pants of the hip hop era in the 90s but essentially it's always it's always remained the same garment and you you if you saw a pair of jeans from the 1890s uh you would absolutely recognize it as something very similar to what we wear today so why do we call them jeans uh, do you know where the word jeans comes from I do. Um, The word jeans comes from uh, Genoa, Italy, which was a major uh, shipping port in the Middle Ages, and the French called the Genoans the Gen. And uh, one of the things that they made in Genoa was sort of a precursor to denim material, which was known as jean cloth. So that's where that name comes from. The the term denim comes from a French industrial town called Nîmes. That product um, was known for um, hundreds of years as Serge de Nîmes. Um, which is shortened to denim. Both jean cloth and denim were uh, made in mass quantities in industrial uh, England and then brought over to America. And uh, denim is more durable than jean cloth, and at some point in the last 150 years or so, the two terms sort of became interchangeable with one another. Um, The product is now made specifically with denim, not jean cloth, but we we a long time ago sort of conflated the, the, uh, the two terms and started calling denim pants jeans. And I remember growing up, we called them dungarees. So where does that term come from? That is actually uh, comes from a town called Dungaree in, in, uh, in India, which is another, another part of the globe that um, several hundred years ago was already mass-producing a, um, a durable cotton cloth used for work clothes. Well, it is interesting how jeans have become such an important part of fashion throughout so many different decades and throughout so many different fashion changes, and yet jeans are, are a staple in all of them from the 50s on up. So what do you think the future of jeans is? Well, uh, I think that, <laughs> excuse me, at this point it's fairly safe to say that it's not going anywhere. I mean, over the last handful of decades, we've seen fashion commentators make the case periodically that maybe uh, Americans are getting tired of their blue jeans and want something else. Um, but uh, they always tend to come back around. I mean, they're durable. But not only is each individual pair durable, but the idea of blue jeans has proved to be extremely durable. Sure has. And it's such a great story that pretty much we've all been a part of. My guest has been James Sullivan. He's a journalist, and his book is called Jeans, A Cultural History of an American Icon. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, James.
One of the great things about hosting this podcast is getting to talk with such interesting people and learn such fascinating things and share them with you. And we're about to do it again with Marcus Chown. Marcus is a science writer and a journalist in the UK, and he's really good at explaining scientific things about your world and the universe in interesting and relatable ways that are easy to understand, which is just the way I, just the way I like it, easy to understand. Marcus is the author of a new book called Infinity in the Palm of Your Hand, 50 Wonders That Reveal an Extraordinary Universe. Hey, Marcus, welcome. So let's start with one of the more provocative things you say in, in your book, and that is that the sun could be made out of bananas and it wouldn't make any difference. Uh, <laughs> huh? Yeah, I mean, that sounds quite a controversial thing, doesn't it, really? But, but I'm just making the point, why is the sun hot? And the sun is hot for an incredibly simple reason, because it's got a lot of mass which is squeezing, being squeezed down on its core by, by gravity. And when you squeeze something, it gets hot. So that incredible amount of mass pressing down on the core of the sun heats it to about 15 million degrees. And at that kind of temperature, matter kind of turns into this kind of uh, anonymous, amorphous state known as a plasma. And it doesn't actually matter what you start off with. You always end up with a plasma. So the sun is something like a billion, billion, billion tons of mostly hydrogen gas. But if you were to put a billion, billion, billion tons of microwave ovens in one place, or a billion, billion, billion tons of bananas, you'll get something equally as hot as the sun. You say that uh, we're born 100% human but die 50% alien. What? what? Most, well, 50% of the cells in your body are not yours. Okay, they are microorganisms which are hitching a ride. So, you know, there's bacteria on your skin, but most, most important, many of these bacteria, we don't actually know what they do. But a lot of them are incredibly important. So, for instance, the, the bacteria in your stomach help you digest your food. So if you take too many antibiotics, which kill those bacteria, you end up with diarrhea because your stomach cannot actually digest your food. So they're actually really important. You don't have any of these organisms when you're born. None at all. So you're 100% human. You then acquire them from your mother's milk, from the environment, and by the time you're about two or three, you've got most of them. So when you die, you've got this, 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 you know, this load of organisms which don't belong to you. It's even worse than what I've, what I've just said, because it turns out that 99.75% of the DNA in your body does not belong to you. It belongs to all these organisms that are hitching a ride. So only one four hundredth of the DNA in you is actually your DNA. Well, that's just weird. That's just plain... Very weird, isn't it? Very weird. What do you mean by you get older on a top floor than you do if you're on the bottom floor? Well, this is actually a consequence of Einstein's theory of gravity. And uh, it tells us that time flows more slowly in strong gravity. So if you are closer to... If you are working on the ground floor of a building, you are closer to the mass of the Earth... So gravity is marginally stronger and time flows more slowly for you than it does on an upper floor. I mean, it's a fantastically small effect. But in 2010, uh, physicists in America were able to show that if you stood on one step of a staircase and someone stood on the step above you, 
you aged more slowly, slowly than they did. And they did it by having two super accurate atomic clocks on the, two, on the two floors. Now, you may think this is so ridiculously esoteric. Why did, you know, who cares? Well, it turns out that if you've got a sat-nav or if you use a smartphone, it determines your location relative to global positioning satellites. And these satellites are in highly elongated orbits, and they carry clocks. And when they come in close to the Earth, they're in stronger gravity, their clocks slow down. And when they go a long way out, their clocks speed up. And if your phone or sat-nav did not compensate for that effect, you would get your location wrong by an extra 50 meters every day. So, you know, you may think it's really esoteric, but actually it affects your life every day. Now, you say in your book that the entire human race could fit into the volume, into the size of a sugar cube, which makes no sense at all. So explain how that works. It turns out that the, the atoms of which you're made are really, really empty. Okay, you've probably got a picture in your mind of an atom that you got from school. It's like a miniature solar system, you know, with a nucleus at the center, which is like the sun, and electrons, which orbit around it like planets. Okay, but that doesn't really tell you how empty atoms are. It turns out that those electrons uh, are very tiny and they orbit a, a long way away from the nucleus compared to the size of the nucleus. To give you some idea, I'll tell you how much empty space there is in an atom as a percentage okay it's 99.9999999999999999 percent i just counted that out on my fingers that's how much empty space there is in atoms okay so that's how much empty space there is in you so if you were to squeeze all of the empty space out of all of the atoms in all the 7 billion people on Earth, you can actually fit them in the volume of a sugar cube. So it just shows you how empty matter is. We're, we're ghosts, really. The science of time fascinates me, the past, present, and future. And So talk a bit about that and time travel and the possibilities of that and, and why this is so interesting. Well, should I say about time travel? I mean, one of, one of the most startling things about time travel is that here we are in 2018 and no physicist can prove it's impossible. And this is, this is because Einstein showed us really in, in 1915 that in principle it would be incredibly easy. I, one of the things you asked me earlier in our conversation is about why you age more quickly on the top floor of a building than the ground floor. And I told you it's because the um, time flows at different rates in different gravity. Okay? So immediately, you, you can see how to build a time machine. You just have two regions with two different gravities, where one where, where time flow flows at a particular rate, and another one where it flows at maybe a slower rate, and you go between them, and you can go back in time. I'll show you how. So this is how you would do it. Um, you imagine a, a region near a black hole. A black hole is the, the densest, uh, uh, most, an object with the most powerful gravity we, we can imagine. So if you imagine that you, you have a black hole where time is flowing very slowly near it compared to the Earth, and you have the Earth. Okay, so, and you start clocks you know, on the Earth and at the black hole at the same time. So we start on, on a Monday. By the time it's Friday by the black hole, 
sorry, sorry, by the time it's Friday by the Earth, it's still only Wednesday by the black hole because time is flowing more slowly there. So if you could go instantaneously from the Earth to the black hole, you would be able to go from Friday to Wednesday. That would be a time machine. Is there any way we could do this? Well, it turns out that Einstein's theory of gravity not only permits the existence of black holes, it permits the existence of things known as wormholes. These are shortcuts through space-time. You know, you can imagine you have a wormhole in California, and uh, you, know, you, you go in one mouth and you crawl a meter or whatever, and you get spat out in London. You know, it's a shortcut through space-time. So basically, the recipe for a time machine is you have the Earth, and you have a region near a black hole, and you connect them with a wormhole. That's a, that's a time machine. Now, to build a time machine, it's totally impractical. We'd need a black hole, we'd need a wormhole, we'd need stuff with repulsive gravity, it would require a lot of energy to do it. Uh, and the only, it would require like a super civilization to do it. It's way, way beyond our technological capabilities. But the point is, it's possible in principle. And that is what worries physicists. I mean, Stephen Hawking who died in the last year, famously proposed what was called the chronology protection conjecture, which is just a fancy name for saying time travel is impossible. In other words, there's got to be some law that we have not yet discovered that must prevent it. Because the problem is, if, you, if time travel is possible, then all kinds of paradoxes which you may have heard about can happen. You, in principle, could go back in time and uh, I don't know why you'd want to do this, but you could shoot your grandmother, your grandfather or, uh, before your mother was born. Um, if you did that, then how could you have gone back in time? Because you were never born. Right. So that is the paradox that keeps physicists awake at night. They know that time travel uh, would be very difficult, uh, very, very difficult to build a time machine in practice. But the fact that it's possible in principle, and they can't prove it isn't, worries them. And the, the rhetorical question that's often asked in this conversation about time travel is, if time travel is possible, where are all the time travelers from the future? They should be coming back here and visiting us and tell us how they do that. That's exactly what Stephen Hawking used to say. One that you explore in your book that doesn't really seem like a science question, but, but I guess it is, is why are there no photographs of the first man on the moon? That's a very interesting question, because obviously next year is the 50th anniversary of the moon landings, you know, 1969. I can't remember how much was spent on the NASA Apollo program, but I mean, in today's money, it would probably be hundreds of billions of dollars. And really, after all that, Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon, never took a photograph of Neil Armstrong. So this was the publicity opportunity of, of, of all history missed. The, the astronauts were, when they were in Houston before they went, they were told to take cameras, which they kept on their chest, by the way. They were, they were told to take them home for the weekend and practice with them. But it turned out to be very difficult to take photographs on the moon because of the high contrast. You know, I mean, on Earth, um, we get soft shadows, but on the moon, you know, there, there, there is no air to soften shadows so it's either very very bright or it's very very dark so the only photographs we actually have of neil armstrong are a photograph in uh, taken which is actually in buzz aldrin's visor a, a reflection in his visor and those fuzzy actual um tv pictures that's all which i think comes as a surprise to most people and it's one of those good little facts to have to uh, impress people 
at a cocktail party, but they, that there are no pictures of Neil Armstrong on the moon, except the, the fuzzy TV pictures, but no real high-quality still photos. No, I mean, it's just absolutely incredible that that would be that would not be done. Um, you know, uh, I don't know at NASA whether they held, held their head in their hands. Right. After, I mean, basically, the, the first two spent only two hours on the moon. That's all they spent, and then they came back. And I don't know if anyone thought, oh, my God, we've missed out on that opportunity. We didn't photograph the first man on the moon. Yeah. Okay, and I, I did want to ask you, though, because there, there's one thing in your book that I read that I've been thinking about ever since because it it boggles the mind but it makes so much sense when you hear the explanation it's about the moon we think of the moon as being up there in the sky in orbit around the earth and it just sits up there but you say no no the the moon is plummeting towards the earth so explain that well this is a very interesting question because i mean it's often a question i get asked by children you know in schools they say oh why don't satellites fall down why doesn't the moon fall down the answer is it is falling down, but it never reaches the Earth. I mean, this was, it took the genius of Isaac Newton, uh, you know, in, in the 1600s, uh, probably the greatest scientist who ever lived, a man whose, whose father uh, couldn't even write and signed his name with a cross, you know, but he became the greatest physicist of all time. And he, he, he thought to himself, why doesn't the moon fall down? And what he did was he imagined a cannon, you know, firing a cannonball, and he thought, well, if it fires the cannonball pretty much horizontally along the ground, you know what will happen. The gravity will curve it down and it will just hit the ground. And then Newton thought, well, wait a minute, why don't, what if I had a bigger cannon? Then I'd be able to fire the, the cannonball even faster. Then maybe it might go perhaps a mile before gravity curved it down and it hit the ground. And then Newton thought, what, what, if, I, what if I had the mother of all cannons? Something that could fire a cannonball, I can't remember the speed, but probably about 18,000 miles an hour, something like that. What if I had a cannon that could do that? Then he realized that as fast as the, the cannonball would be falling back down to the Earth, the Earth's surface, because it's round, would curve away from it. So the ball, even though it was falling, would never get any closer to the Earth's surface. And so it would fall forever in a circle. And that's what he realized the moon was doing. The moon was falling forever, but never getting any closer, going in a circle. And the genius of that was when he recognized that the moon was falling, he was able to compare how, because he could see how fast it was falling, he, could, he, he knew how fast the moon went around the earth and everything. He could see how fast it was moving. He could compare it with, a, with how fast an apple fell from a tree. And from that, that comparison, he could deduce the behavior of gravity. And Newton was able to deduce that simply because he was the genius who realized the moon is falling. And the answer to all those school children is, is that the satellites are falling as well. But they're falling in a circle. And the, as, as fast as they fall towards the Earth, the Earth's surface curves away from them so they never get any closer. That is so weird. And yet, and yet, when you think about it, though, it, it makes sense, sort of, to, to non-scientific people like me. And it is one of the 50 wonders that you talk about in your book, Infinity in the Palm of Your Hand, 50 Wonders That Reveal an Extraordinary Universe. Marcus Chown has been my guest, and there's a link to that book in the show notes. I appreciate you being here, Marcus. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. It's been a real pleasure being on your show. 
I bet at some point in your life you've thought about writing to some you know, billionaire CEO or someone very successful or very famous in hopes of getting a meeting. But you never did because you knew it would be a huge waste of time and would probably go nowhere. Well, think again. When 21-year-old Daniel Jacobs moved to San Francisco, he had no money and he knew no one. He knew he needed to make connections, so he decided, what the heck, and he wrote to several captains of industry, CEOs, presidents, and other top-level executives. He recalls that, I let them know that I admired specific work decisions they'd made and character traits they've displayed, and it would be amazing if I could learn from them. Then, something amazing happened. He got replies, lots of replies, from the president of Morgan Stanley, the president of NBC, the chief marketing officers of Coca-Cola, Intuit, and many more. Many of them agreed to speak with him, and several became mentors. Daniel is now a very successful entrepreneur, having started several companies of his own. The president of NBC told him years later why he agreed to meet with him. He said, because in the 20 years of being in this business, every single person who reached out to me cold wanted something. They wanted money. They wanted a job. They wanted something. And you were the first person who asked only for advice. And that is something you should know. I invite you to share this podcast with someone you know who might benefit from it. There's usually a share button on every podcast app out there. Whether you listen on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen. It's easy to share, and I'm sure someone will appreciate that you did so. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.